Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can find out a little bit more about their background. Speaking to us today is Dr. Robert S. Murphy from the University of Kitakushu, and the paper we're going to be discussing is The Concept of Syllabus Design and Curriculum Development, a look at five major syllabus designs. Good to speak to you. Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. I believe the paper that we're looking at today came from your uh, doctoral thesis. Um, That's right. Before we get into the major contents of it, as someone who's gone through uh, the process of, of getting a doctorate whilst working overseas and having mm -hmm. to uh, do it through distance, how did you choose what you were going to study for your doctorate and uh, how did you choose where you were going to do so? Okay, well, that's a great question. This is a natural extension from uh, my master's degree that I attained at the uh, University of Birmingham, and that's uh, in the UK, not not Alabama, in the US. And uh, so that got me very familiar with the British system. And then I became a tutor, actually, for the University of Birmingham. I had conducted an interview uh, with Zoltan Dornier at the University of Nottingham uh, for a JALP publication. And uh, we had become familiar with each other, and he really liked the way the interview was conducted. And when there was an opening uh, in his lab, you know, I was on a short list, uh, and I was lucky enough to to get in. And he understood my problems that I was having, and uh, he didn't allow me to latch on to neuroscience as much as perhaps I wanted to, but it became much stronger because he was he was demanding more stuff from the EFL side and I was trying to get more scientific and we, we worked out a very interesting relationship. Well, for uh, people who are not in the field of EFL, the name Zoltan Donia really does open eyes when you say that you were not only able to work with him or work, work under him, but also, I believe, uh, develop a, a good professional relationship well, it, it, I was uh, floored when he, he offered me hmm. uh, the spot. And uh, yeah, I, I feel very, very lucky, very privileged. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, the thing is, you, you did go to the University of Nottingham, uh, which was the rival to my alma mater, the uh, University of Nottingham Trent. So uh -huh. allowing you on the podcast is uh, just uh, me getting over past rivalries. <laughs> 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 I do remember one time when we... We beat Nottingham University in the varsity rugby game, getting fairly drunk and uh, not not the driver <laughs> of the car, uh, I must uh, add, but uh, piling into someone's car and driving through the Nottingham University campus, uh, reminding them of our victory. But, uh, those were in my younger days. <laughs> you must have disturbed all the ducks. <laughs> the it's a lovely campus. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the paper that we are looking at is about the concept of syllabus design. So the concepts of putting together uh, a structure that allows a course to uh, mm -hmm. to develop. And uh, if uh, any of you read the paper, and I do recommend it, um, the words that you use or are used from the people who you are citing about syllabi might surprise a few of the readers. So words like rich and pleasing and beautiful and varied. Uh, would you agree that what some people might believe is just a, a fairly mundane structural document needs to have a an aesthetic quality over just just the, the literal quality of it. Sure, sure. That's a, that's a fantastic question. I'm glad you 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 noticed that. 
it might seem odd that a person who's trying to bring more science to the table uh, is talking about these aesthetic qualities and 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 uh, and uh, richness in a more artistic fashion. Um, but if a teacher and the course developer um, can latch on to and understand how the brain picks up on cues and um, makes learning much more efficient because of the design, uh, which should make the learning not just more pleasing and, and, and easy to come in, but to, to, to be deeper uh, in the end. If a teacher or, or the designer can understand these concepts before uh, they, they set out to write their new syllabus, then uh, I'm pretty sure they'll be able to um, create a much richer content for the students. Mm. And it's that knowledge uh, uh, that's necessary uh, beforehand mm. uh, that makes a difference. Well, and syllabi so, might seem so basic to some teachers. It's it's essentially the, the statement of what you're going to do and why you're going to do it. Mm, but mm. I think if it if you make it more approachable, this is why while mm -hmm. I was reading your document, I, uh, reading your paper, I thought, yeah, this is something that we, we should keep at the forefront of our minds because mm -hmm. we want the students to read it, not only read it, but to absorb it and to engage it, engage with it. Mm -hmm. And so if it if it is all these things if it contains all the technical information and it's approachable mm -hmm. then it's more likely that students are going to take the time to read it i totally agree with that thank you uh, i'm so glad you brought that up not many people notice that so yes thank you for picking up on that well the reason it comes to mind is because uh i have worked at universities in the past which i won't name uh okay. where the course designer basically put in the first lesson was going to be just reading the syllabus. <laughs> and this could take 15 minutes if there were no mm -hmm. questions. It could take 30 minutes if students want to discuss it. If the teacher wasn't that engaged, it could last, you know, 90 seconds. Yeah, yeah. And if you've only got 15 lessons and you're using up one of them just to tell them what they're going to do in the other lessons, I figure it should be at least interesting enough that there's perhaps even some learning that goes on while you're actually talking about what you're going to do in the course. Hopefully that teacher did that. Yeah. One hopes. Um, <laughs> you also bring up in your, actually, you also bring up in the interactions that, that we've had mm -hmm. that this is a paper that's getting some traction, probably because it, it does outline very effectively all the different types uh, of design for a syllabus but also that this is not something that's explained well enough in you know masters uh, of english language teaching or celtas or deltas that that people might be taking do you think that you know inexperienced teachers don't get enough of this guidance in qualification courses that they're doing these days that's a great question um yeah, the last time I checked on ResearchGate, this uh, this chapter from my PhD, which I turned into a, a solo paper, had thirty-five thousand downloads. It really, this is really surprising. I mean, it's like six, five to six hundred every week the past few years. And I, uh, my only conclusion is that there must be some courses out there that are that are asking their students to read this. Uh, I, I can't come up with any other explanation. Um, so from that 
conclusion, yeah, perhaps it, this was a missing component. And some teachers are, are using that and asking their students to look at it. But from my perspective, actually, when I was uh, a student at Birmingham, and then uh, since I'm still tutoring for them, these five uh, points that I brought up, the five uh, syllabus designs, was something that I learned for the first time on the Birmingham course. And so I can say that not all courses are lacking in this area because this is where my roots are. And, and I grew from there. Yeah. Well, I would agree. I mean, going back nearly 20 years now to when I did my master's degree, I, I thought I got a very good uh, basic understanding of curriculum design. I, I will name the university. So it's the University mm -hmm. of Technology in Sydney. Mm -hmm. And they are probably the, well, at the time, they were the largest uh, online course that you could take. Uh, during the mm. time, I, I never had the chance to go to Australia. I've subsequently traveled there, but uh, everything was done online. And so it did require quite a lot of focused, basic understanding of, of this kind of thing, curriculum, syllabus design. But maybe uh, it's just not a priority for other courses uh, these days. I can see many skipping over this. Yeah, yeah. Also, just to put, I'm just, I've just called it up now, just to put um, Robert's achievement uh, into perspective. So you said 30,000, 33,000 downloads? Yeah, something like that, yeah. My, my best paper on ResearchGate only has 13,000 downloads. So it's, ah. uh, I'm feeling very jealous now. We're continuing the Nottingham rivalries, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Well, well, now I'm motivated to do something a bit good. Okay. Um, so in your text, you, you note, uh, you talk about textbooks and how they approach implementing syllabus design and, and perhaps even replacing the need for teachers to think about syllabus design. Do you think that modern textbooks are becoming too prescriptive in this area, kind of not giving uh, teachers enough space to develop their own abilities in, in curriculum and syllabus development? Certainly so. Uh, a lot of people uh, at the university level, when their university asks them to provide a syllabus for the course, they just look at the textbook and look at the index or something and just like copy paste whatever's there and plop it in. Um, and sometimes the course designers have that in mind, actually, they, because they expect teachers to be doing that. And so it, it makes teachers very lazy uh, in that sense. Now, up until maybe 10 years ago or so, that wasn't so bad. But I've seen another trend and um, talking with a lot of other um, much more published uh, textbook designers. Um, they're saying a lot of the editing process now is mandated by people who have MBEs, uh, you know, and they're working in the business area and not necessarily even teachers or have very limited teacher experience. Those are the people who are deciding what goes in the course because they had a focus group mm. in Hong Kong and they had a focus group in Sydney perhaps. And, and Sydney says we need A, B, and C and Hong Kong says we need G and F. And so those are important factors now to put into the book. Mm. And so a, a lot of uh, uh, changes are being made based on what the salespeople uh, want. And I feel this is, damaging uh, in obviously many ways uh, because they're just trying to sell the book now, uh, catering to the needs that they found uh, through focus group studies and stuff like that. But at the expense of the intuition of experienced teacher and designers. Um, and the final product is something that 
if it's not very good, it's of course damaging for that course. But then what about the budding teachers that are trying to learn how to become better teachers? They're looking at this uh, syllabus that was designed uh, just to raise sales. And uh, what can they, how much can they learn from that uh, as opposed to having a properly developed syllabus uh, with a, a scientific based, um, a science based uh, pedagogy embedded? Uh, the outcomes are uh, very, very different, especially for the, the, you know, the newbies. So the paper that we're talking about looks at five different ways uh, to organize a syllabus. And some of the questions that you ask before a person even begins to de develop their syllabus, I think are very useful to frame our discussion. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about the question of product versus process. Yes, yes. Uh, how would you characterize that um, for people who perhaps don't have a lot of experience uh, when it comes to developing syllabi? Why is this an important question? That's a wonderful starting point. Um, I think most people, when they're starting off, they want to be pragmatic. They have a, at least some sort of a vision and goal in mind. And so it's normal for people to start off with what is called a product-based design. It's like, this is our goal. We want these vocabulary, this vocabulary list to be covered. We want these grammar points. And, you know, it's all laid out. And then, okay, now what's the path to get there? So the product design is, focused on, is, is uh, focused on the product, yeah, literally. Uh, whereas the process is not looking so much at uh, the end, but looking at, uh, you know, the, the paths to take to get there. So instead of we're going to be, at the end of the course, we're going to be presenting on literature from this book say uh that would be a product but then the process would be okay what what do we need to do to make a good presentation about this literature it's it may seem like a small difference for for a new teacher but it's a huge difference uh especially for um teachers that are used to a product a product-based syllabus to switch over to process-based it's it, it th there's so many changes they have to make Mm. Uh, but it, but it, it's so much more, uh, it gives so much more autonomy and uh, metacognitive uh, growth to the students if you let them, uh, if you lead them down the process-based mm. uh, pedagogical design. One of the quotes that I like to live by is from an American comedian podcaster uh, by the name of uh, Adam Carolla. And he mm. often says, in your work, don't be a warehouse be a factory. So always be thinking about producing something new instead of kind of hoarding what you think is the optimum outcome, which will obviously over time through entropy, it will lose its its energy, it will lose its effectiveness. So always try and be producing something new. Personally, what kind Wonderful. of design philosophies do you have when it comes to putting together your courses? And of course, because I would guess from the way you've characterized it that you're not a product-oriented person. No, no. What kind of processes do you try to keep active in your classes to make sure that uh, your students are always moving forward and, and also that you can enjoy uh, every class that you teach? Mm, mm, mm. It would go down to the work that I did at the Harvard Graduate School of Education uh, under Kurt Fisher. And, uh, He's the person who started up the Mind, Brain, and Education uh, course there, which has um, had a sh huge impact uh, globally. 
on, on uh, education, uh, educational design. And he's most famous for uh, what he calls dynamic skill theory. And he got me very interested. So he mentored me for about 10 years between my uh, master's and my, my PhD and overlapping both of them. So he helped me out gr greatly. Uh, and so I'm a sort of a disciple of his work in dynamic skill theory. So all of my work is based on uh, cognitive development that he has been uh, teaching, which is uh, based on Piaget's work in development. And to, there's so much to talk about, but uh, to make it, uh, to give a gist, when people study, they're either in a low support context or a high support context. And the high support context is not, uh, it shouldn't be thought of as spoon feeding. It's providing questions and uh, having the students think about uh, what they have to do next rather than giving them what they have to do next. So you're leading them through questions. Uh, and that, that is what a high support context is. And the low support context is uh, telling them what they need to do and then just letting them figure it out without giving them the extra questions and the thought processes to help develop their mental fa faculties uh, to get there. Unfortunately, I think many teachers and uh, of course, students and parents don't know or haven't been taught the distinction between a high support context and a low support context. But once you grasp the idea that, oh, you just give more questions and pull them towards the, uh, the goal, but let them have the aha moments, you know, that's, that's, that's the key. They have to have the aha moments. Uh, they have to feel the dopamine rush every time uh, they, uh, they go, ah, oh, yeah, okay. And, <laughs> motivation just goes, you know, goes through the roof. Once you realize how different the outcomes are between, because we've grafted out, it's, there's a, if you look at my uh, doctoral work, you, you'll see all the, the, the data I have on this. There's a huge difference in the end when you have a six month or a 12 month course that is a, in a high support context versus a low support context. So this is what really drives the designs of uh, my syllabus and, and uh, my textbooks and uh, just even my, my daily teaching. Uh, that's, that philosophy is definitely in there. Provide as much of a high support context as possible. Well, I think that philosophy comes through in, from what I've known about you and from what you've spoken about in today's uh, interview, your connections with the people who have educated you. So Professor yes. Fisher, Professor Dornier. Uh, it seems that after you have completed you know, your work with them, you maintain good personal and professional bonds with them beyond the, the range of the courses. So how important is it to you uh, to develop personal relationships, good contact with the students uh, who are in your classes? That's another great question. Yeah, I think it's much more important than many teachers may realize. You know, when a student gives a teacher a good uh, evaluation. Uh, they may be doing it to raise their score, perhaps, but uh, if it's from the heart, they're probably doing it because not so much specifically what you taught, but it's the personal connection really puts a halo effect on the entire course and you, uh, and um, it raises their motivation. So it's definitely a win-win if the students are feeling a special connection with the teacher. And I, I think it's it's so, I, I don't like to be, you know, the, what are those, the boot camp 
sort of uh, mm. teacher, you know, like so strict and like shouting out at, at students. Uh, but it's not like I'm uh, I'm a warm, fuzzy, and huggy kind of a teacher either. I I try to uh, I say, look, I think it's important for you to to understand how the brain works, and and if you go through uh, these kind of processes and not try to wrote memorize them, but try to make it try to figure out how this will might be important for you in life in the future. And then let's try to first envision then what your future may be like. Uh, how would you be using English in your future? Questions like that. When I ask them later, because I, I, I also conduct my own focus groups. Most of my students say I've never been asked through junior high school and high school, what my future might be like with English. I've never, nobody's ever asked that me from me before. Do, do you really mm. want to know? I said, yes, I do want to know. Tell me about it. Uh, and wow, you know, they, they get so uh, emotional mm. uh, that this teacher wants me to talk about my future with him. <laughs> right. You know, I, for me, I think it's so natural. But yeah, it, it's apparently, you know, uh, often enough, it's, uh, it's new to them. And they mm. enjoy that uh, extra attention. Well, it's something that I try to put in my classes explicitly that mm. uh, comes from the work of someone who is basically a management consultant, Simon Sinek. And he talks mm. about the, this idea of the, the golden circle. And so imagine it as like three concentric circles and the outer circle okay. is what, and then it goes through how, and it goes to why. And he'll talk about the fact that businesses, but this translates also to, to students and, and people in their regular lives, that everybody knows what they're doing 100% of the time. What are you doing right now? They'll be able to tell you. Most people will know how they're doing it. Or if they don't know how, then they can ask and they can learn. The real question is why? And his thesis is start with why. If you start from the middle and you know why you're doing it, then you'll figure out how to do it and what you're going to do will take care of itself. If you work from the outside in, then oftentimes there's, there's a lack of direction. And so I think that does make it quite an emotional connection. And mm -hmm. as you say, you don't have to be huggy, feely, you know, you know, all, all emotional about it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but you can at least be open and honest and say, look, tell me why you're doing this mm -hmm. and then I can help you. Because mm -hmm. if you don't know why, then I can't fix it for you. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love the way you sum that up. Wonderful. Yes. Well, then let's move on to uh, the question of synthetic versus analytic oh, when yeah. it comes to uh, syllabus design. And so the idea of, a, uh, if I understand it correctly, a synthetic uh, syllabus is made up of many interacting parts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is kind of focused on, on what you're doing, whereas an analytic uh, syllabus will focus on what the actual needs are. So instead of the teacher choosing the bits that make up the course, they will actually look at the needs of the students and then form the syllabus around that. Is that is that correct? Yes, yes. Uh, and so in that way, it's very. It, it can be overlapping with the what what we mentioned earlier about the product versus process. These are kind of a series of questions that you ask before you get to the five uh, syllabi models. And so yeah. the final question is the idea of linear versus cyclical. So uh, that's a big one. So could you could you explain that? Uh, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this might be the maybe the most important finding for me in uh, with my doctoral work. A linear syllabus is again sounds the most pragmatic way to go about things. Like you know, um, 
if you're studying martial arts, karate or whatever, you know, you, you go up the steps, you know, uh, your first black belt, your second, third, right? Um, it just seems so natural. Um, but maybe the best word to, to, uh, to sum it up is that, that would be a simplistic view of how the brain learns. There's nothing linear about how the brain learns. Everything is cyclic. Um, just like, you know, we have night and day and night and day coming. I took that to heart and then I designed a, a course that uh, was, it's an EFL course. And uh, the students have to do three presentations in, within the, the 15 weeks. And they're group presentations. And what they do is they, they choose their own topic within a, a, a set range that I, I had uh, set up for them. But each group chooses their own topic. and then. In groups, they come up with their designs, but then they also peer assess and self-assess as I uh, have a teacher assessment there. Now, the first time they do it, it's, not, it's just normal as, as you would expect it to be. But then the second time they do it, I have them go through the exact same process. Don't change a, a single bit of it. And so they don't have to worry about what they have to do next. Their brains are already thinking about uh, are trying to remember, oh, last time we did this. So in this case, with the new topic, uh, let's try this, let's try that. And you, you can notice their wording, trying to reflect on what they did last time and, and learning from the peer assessments that they did last time. So they're not only doing the peer assessments for the sake of me as for you know scoring and for the other groups, but to sharpen their own eyes. Now, the third time around, again, I make absolutely no change. It's exactly the same. And so they're on their way to becoming like professionals, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. in, in this sort of structure. And if you do it six times, you know, by the, the you know, we have a summer vacation and they come back and then they, the fourth time they're, they're remembering the process again, and the fifth and sixth time they're, they're just zip, zip, zipping right through it uh, because it's, it's already second nature. That's what the brain does. If we go through cycles that are, that don't change, we can focus better on uh, the, the more important stuff, because we're not wondering, we're not second guessing what we have to do uh, in order to move forward. We know what we have to do to move forward. Now we just have to build the content and get better at, with the content. And wow, by the end of the year, because um, I, I have them write up uh, their metacognitive thoughts. How do you feel you've been developing across this? Reflect on the differences between your second presentation and your fifth presentation. And they come up with very, very rich insight into why the cyclical process mm. is helping them uh, learn much more deeply. And, and uh, um, if you think about it, the confidence they gain is immense because they absolutely know the structure. And then they just have to plop in and, and work on the new content. Mm. So they're just so much more focused and motivated. Right. And that makes a huge, huge difference. The data that I had to just, uh, yeah. So if it's linear, it's more like uh, the, low the low support context. But yeah. when it's cyclical, they're actually helping themselves do much better. So it's much easier to provide a high support context. Well, that's where, I think that's where the importance of the teacher comes in. So mm -hmm. a, a linear approach, a student could follow by themselves with a textbook or an online course without that kind of support. I think yeah. when the teacher says 
okay, these are the things that were going to change, but then specifically, these are the things that were not going to change. It reduces yeah. the cognitive load on yeah. the on the student, and they can actually put their energy into the thing that's new. When you're constantly right. introducing new things, it's like, uh, well, it's not as life-threatening, but when you drive a car, if you thought about every process connected to driving a car, you'd never be able to leave the driveway. Yeah, It's yeah. this... It's this focused repetition of a certain 95% of the tasks allows you to put your energy into the 5% that really makes the difference. And I think that kind of approach in a course allows a student to feel more confident that they've got, you know, 80% of it nailed down. They don't need to worry about that. They just don't need to put much energy into it and put the energy into the thing that's going to actually improve their, their skill in that area. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to to I really like what you said, and, and it just hit me to to further that. It's like by the second semester, they're they're not only driving; they're they're race car drivers now, right? So they're not thinking about anything. They're, they're now they're trying to you know beat other people and and go for speed and and right. and, and you know uh, further go much further than the average driver does on the street. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I, I think, think it's, we can go that way. Yeah, it's also something that when you do this, you highlight the fact that language that communication is something that the brain is is hardwired to to understand and to want to develop but oftentimes when that goes into a second or third language goes into a foreign language then these processes seem to become unautomated that it that the right. students yeah. seem to think that they have to be monitoring them at all times so when you take out that necessity and you, you focus on it, you say no no like you know how to do this, but you're just, you know, you've got the hardware, you're just using a different software now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, interesting point. And so, yeah, this linear versus cyclical, this distinction is huge. Mm. It's huge for, you know, uh, course developers. Yeah. I, I say, it's, yeah. And this is why I like the design of your paper, because you go through these questions first. You make the reader question themselves, question their backgrounds, uh, question the knowledge that they have and also the the innate motivations that people have particularly when you i think when you start teaching you just copy the patterns that you saw from your teachers mm -hmm, and you think mm -hmm. that that is teaching yeah and oftentimes you need exactly as this paper does to kind of deconstruct your biases deconstruct your motivations and then before you even look at what the syllabi look like then uh, uh, ask teaches these questions. So I think that's probably why it's such a popular paper and why as a, if I was teaching an ELT course, I would recommend it to, to students. Thank you. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not, but uh, if I was. <laughs> so let's move on to the question of syllabus design factors. And you point out uh, these, these things, and I don't believe that they are presented in, they're certainly not in order of importance, but you, you took them from a paper uh, of Tag and Woodward and that people need to think about. So A, common practices, B, theories of SLA, C, the wider educational context, D, the course objectives, and E, learner backgrounds. And then you, you talk about how these different factors interact. Um, for you, if you were approaching a completely new course, which of these factors or which combination of factors would you start with if it was a completely fresh page syllabus? Let, let's look at the five first. The first, common practice and trends. Uh, and then theories, B is uh, theories of second language acquisition and pedagogy. These 
sound very top heavy and you, you have to have such a huge background to to even be able to talk about these authoritatively uh and then see a wider educational context so all, you really have to be quite experienced to 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 properly to, to uh, deduce what what's necessary from these um so if you are then sure you'd probably have those in mind but i don't they're, they're that's kind of like background knowledge for me it's it's the backdrop right that's how i treat it and d and e uh d is course objectives and e is the learner background so these are the two that are often dropped when uh, people are designing textbooks because they have no idea what the specific course objectives are going to be at, at your language school or at the university and the e the learner backgrounds obviously they have no idea uh who johnny or yumiko are you know in your class and so there's no way that they can properly adapt for those so there's a huge difference between the first three and the second two categorically different I would focus personally because uh, A, B, and C are kind of taken care of by the, the course author or, or somebody else. Um, I look at D and E uh, because I like to localize the content. And so that's how I differentiate myself as a local person uh, designing curricula for local people. That's the way it should be done. You, you look at the course objectives of the institution you're working at. Uh, and but then the most important thing is the learner backgrounds. Are the students actually capable of doing this? And this is where cognitive development studies kick in. Uh, you have to know what they're capable of doing. Uh, first of all, in their first language, uh, if they're not capable of uh, writing an essay in the first language, why do we assume that you know they can write an essay in their second language? Cognitively, it's it's sort of a ridiculous thing to to ask them to do, unless uh, at least one of the two are high. Either their L two uh, skill, the la second language skill, is is uh, close to their first language, or they're actually very good. They're very skilled at writing essays. Mm. If if both are lacking, then it's uh, it's torturous to expect them to create these good essays in English when they can't even do that in their mother tongue yet. Well, we're, I've had, had this conversation before when we're looking at uh, final test design mm -hmm. and what can reasonably be, be expected, but also on entrance exam design as well. Oh, yeah. When yeah, you're yeah. talking about high school students mm -hmm. and really trying to think about what what is within their zone of proximal capacity. Development, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, it, not necessarily the uh, capacity. The, uh, in terms of, it, because it, it's just a one-shot test. Ah, uh, yeah. So yeah. whether they can actually approach it and then how you grade the output, like how can you fairly grade the output of mm. asking them to write an entrance essay if they've never written an essay? Yeah. And then you know, what kind of rubric can you design to help the people who are grading the test and all this kind mm -hmm, of... Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you're right that understanding your audience is an important mm -hmm. part of you know, any kind of uh, course or exam design. Okay, so the title of the paper that we're talking about today is The Concept of Syllabus Design and Curriculum Development, the subtitle being A Look at Five Major Syllabus Designs. So uh, I think we would be remiss if we didn't actually talk about the <laughs> syllabus designs that you, uh, that you included. And to list them at the beginning, we don't have to go into a lot of detail with all of them. Again, I, I recommend that anyone who's interested in this, uh, anyone who has to design a syllabus, which I'm assuming is, is quite a large number of our listeners, should read this paper because it will help uh, to 
narrow down uh, the the things that you that you should be focusing on. Uh, but the different uh, syllabi designs were uh, sorry, the different syllabus designs were grammatical, notional, functional, lexical, task based, and content based. And as I read through, I, I felt that. Probably the, the content-based course is one that is becoming more popular these days, particularly with uh, CLIL, EMIETP, and uh, English for Specific Purposes, which are all kinds of courses that have come up in past uh, interviews. But which of these uh, syllabi do you view as being the most common and the ones that maybe teachers should focus their attentions on if they want to build a decent syllabus based on the students that they have? Hmm. Okay, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, wow, it, that really depends on the institution, right? That the people are working right. at. If people listening are, you know, based in Japan, then they know that uh, grammatical, you know, uh, type type of uh, syllabus and uh, grammar translation, to be more specific, mm -hmm. is huge in Japan. It's it's traditionally that's just been the way it's done, uh, but we're slowly moving away from it. If your institution is expecting you to teach that course, then there isn't, you know, you can't leave that behind. But what you can do is you can try to tweak that and uh, with uh, the ideas that I put forth about uh, giving more autonomy and, uh, you know, making it, try to make it cyclical way you can. Yeah, the, the more interesting types of uh, syllabus design, the, the, the more progressive ones, uh, would be the the bottom three, so lexical, task-based, and then the content-based. Lexical is based on, of course, Lexis, the you know the language, the the mm. chunks that are being taught. But what's interesting about that is you can give your students uh, assignments that uh, provide a lot of autonomy and let them grow with it, rather mm. than just simply simplistically having them wrote memorize things. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, leeway with that. So lexical, if you do it just as a uh, rote memorization then again it's torturous mm. but but you can you, you can really turn that around and make it a, a very fun and deep experience for the students uh very similar to what task base uh where task base goes because you can turn the lexical uh chunks into tasks learning right. tasks right well the as i was reading through i kind of remembered a lot of the uh tasks that I did when I was completing my my MA. Mm -hmm. And when I was I was doing it, I was doing it um, basically from distance. And I was working at a, at a language school at the time. I was working at the now defunct language school called Geos. Not my fault. <laughs> <laughs> but what I could do was study at night and then the next day try it out and then study something at night and then come in the next day and try it out. And what I what I realized that however the institution puts uh, a limit on what you can be teaching the the how you do it is not necessarily limited so the range of methodologies that you have if you're teaching a lexically based syllabus you still have those methodologies and those activities and those tasks and those those things that you can do uh -huh, uh -huh. related to lexis as you would related to grammar or you know notional functional and uh -huh, it, it's uh -huh. just that repertoire of work so the type of syllabus doesn't necessarily limit the range of your teaching methodologies it can but hopefully yeah you can get around it yes 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 and so yeah it's not it's not as limiting as mm -hmm. some people might think yeah i agree yeah mm. now the task based uh syllabus was something that 
was getting a lot of traction about 10 years ago when I was working mm -hmm. down at Ritsumekan Asia Pacific University. Several people were doing their uh, PhDs at the time, and a couple of them had chosen task-based teaching as basically the underpinning of the of the work that they were doing. How, uh, if you know, uh, how has that uh, kind of developed over the last decade? Because um, I haven't been in contact with it since I moved to Fukuoka. Yeah, so there's an inherent problem with task-based syllabus. I've, I've written about that in the chapter as well. Some people question if it's, in fact, the syllabus. Mm. Perhaps it's just an approach. We can't really, I mean, nobody has really designed a syllabus per se, although in the textbooks that are about it, the applied linguistics books that are about task-based learning and task-based syllabus design, they talk about it as if there is a syllabus out there, you know, but we don't really see it. It's just talked about. <laughs> it's, 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 you know, and um, I'm thinking people who have been following this are continuing research and they're still producing books. However, it hasn't, you would think it would have caught on right. uh, and, and been much more of a, you know, game changer. Mm. But it's always been sort of on the side. And I think mm. that's because it's, it's more of an approach. It's not really a syllabus design per se. And so we can't really plop it in there and say, you know, this is how it should, this is how it should be designed. It's, it's just, uh, it's, uh, I think I wrote this in the, in the chapter as well. It's something you can incorporate in your teaching mm. rather than calling it an entire, you know, pedagogy or, or syllabus design of its own. Yeah. No, I, I would agree with you on that. And, and not because I've seen it, you know, be tried and, and fail. I think that there are many things about task-based learning that can be incorporated into another, you know, into a syllabus. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I just don't see it as a, uh, it, it, as you say, it's more of an approach. It's more of a methodology than it is a something that can underpin an entire syllabus. Moving on to the question about uh, content-based courses. Mm. Would you agree that they're becoming slightly more trendy these days, particularly as they are uh, quite a big shift away from the grammar-based or the purely lexical-based? This is something that I discussed with Aaron Hahn recently, uh, mm. that sometimes syllabus designers want to move completely away from the way that high school is taught. Um, would you agree that they're becoming slightly more trendy and uh, do you think that this is uh, actually the future well yeah content based is following the the initial footsteps that i think task based was you know um and it's it, it's promising a a new a new dawn maybe uh, a new way of, of going about things uh the difference is though i think content content based can actually pull through a little bit further than uh task based has uh and it's I, I'm very happy that this is true because it's, it's also very, very compatible with uh, the research that uh, I had done. And uh, well, what, what I'm trying to say is that the data that I came up with is very encouraging. I think it's very encouraging that the data that uh, came out from my PhD uh, is very compatible with uh, content-based uh, designs and it shines a nice light on this uh, this sort of a uh, teaching style and uh, syllabus design, um, and so I think content based has a promising future. Mm. Yeah, 
Well, to kind of bring the whole thing uh, back around to uh, the words that we talked about at the beginning, that a syllabus should be rich and pleasing and beautiful. And we've gone on and spoke about, you know, the varieties varied, autonomous. But you finish your paper by saying that syllabus design is, by its very nature, an art, not a science. And this is something that I, I strongly agree with. And also what I try to avoid when designing any of my courses, that it's it's not a scientific approach. It is very much based on the context that we're trying to, to focus on and also personally uh, on the students. So again, to, to finish up, uh, this idea of uh, syllabus design being an art, not a science, how could we encourage more syllabus designers, course designers to approach their work uh, in a more artistic and pleasing rich and beautiful way okay <laughs> that's a great question i um uh to end this with so i think maybe some people would feel if you say it's an art rather than a science it might be off-putting for some people and mm -hmm. uh, i i would yeah I, I i would empathize actually what what i mean uh, when i say things like that is that uh it can be an art once you have the under the scientific understanding the background knowledge is already there in place mm. once all of that is there then you can take the next step and then uh tweak it so that it it's more artistic it's more pleasing it's it's sort of like the difference between your first draft of an essay and then your 10th your final one right yeah the, uh, the first two is you're just trying to put the facts down and you can end it there, but then it's not nearly as polished as the, as the end one, right? right? And so if you take that sort of a, an idea, then uh, the scientific part would be your first few drafts, and then the artistic parts would be, you know, your final polished product. Mm. If, you, if, if I put it in these words, then it's probably much less off-putting, and it's much more sensible. <laughs> and so people would be able to say, oh, okay. Uh, artistic means having the groundwork done and, and and having everything down and then tweaking it to make it more pleasing more readable mm -hmm. ah, okay that makes sense and I, i'm not even arguing with that anymore i like that and maybe that's one that's one way to help people latch onto it yeah, well, i would it. agree with that and and certainly even if the people listening to this have a long background of syllabus design the paper that we've been discussing today i think would uh, help anyone just go back and, and refresh their their thoughts about how they approach teaching and then how they approach lesson design, how they approach the syllabus design, and maybe even philosophically how they approach and their, their entire uh, profession. So the paper we've been talking about today is the concept of syllabus design and curriculum development, a look at five major syllabus designs. Uh, thank you, Dr. Murphy, for your time today, and I wish you the best of luck in your future work. Thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed this. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend, 
and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.